Good morning, Northside. If we've not had a chance to meet, my name is Mark, and I'm the author of Quest 52 that we've been going through all year. Such a joy for me to be with you in this final week that we're going to be talking about this book on the weekend. Now, the quest for Christ doesn't end this weekend. You know, obviously, there's a couple more chapters to go. You could do that on your own uh, as we look at next week, getting into these uh, three ideas of he was, he is, he is to come. But the quest for Christ doesn't end even after that. It, this is a lifelong quest for me. And I just want to say, for some of you, maybe you're new here, maybe this is the first time you're here or you're jumping in online and you're thinking, I don't even know Christ, how do I follow him? Listen, you have as much access to him as anybody else. This is not a quest to know about him, it's a quest to know him. And though when I write the book, I have maybe a little more background in history and culture, geography, that's not what keeps you from Christ or keeps you in Christ, knowing Christ. It's when you follow him. And I learned that this last year. A part of my quest for Christ is not just digging into books and scripture. It's actually walking the soil of Israel. And I go to Israel really a couple times a year. Well, not this year probably. But every year I lead a group of guys on a 110-mile hike in Israel. 12 guys. We, we walk the soil. And it's always uh, leaders in our church or, or men of uh, influence that we want to help disciple in this incredible journey with Christ. I've never taken a pre-believer with me until this year. And it was almost an accident that I brought this guy. His name's Stephen. And I was doing a, a Seder for a friend of mine who's also helps me lead this trip. He's got a big backyard and had about 100 people. And Stephen came up to me and said, hey, Jason just told me I should go on this trip. Now, what you need to know is we already had the 12 guys set. But one of the men tragically died in a car accident. And so we had an open spot, but we were going to keep it open. Uh, we had planned to take his ashes and put them in the Sea of Galilee, which we did. But we wanted to just have this like memorial spot open for him. But it became apparent that God was doing something in Stephen's life before Stephen ever realized it. And so Stephen got this invite to come and he came to me and said, I just don't know. He's a big businessman, super busy guy. And I, he said, I'm not even a Christian, but I'm curious about Jesus. And I'm going uh, I'm to reveal to you, don't judge me, of what a bad person I really am. I wanted him to go, so I began to manipulate him. I said, Stephen, you realize that God took someone's life. <laughs> right? I, I know, don't, don't, don't judge me. How could you say no to that? So he actually wound up coming on the trip. And when you're, when you're hiking 110 miles, you got a lot of time with the guys around you. Miles and miles of just talking together. And Stephen, I really like him. He liked me. We walked a lot together. And he would always bring up these like issues or why he doesn't like the church, or why he doesn't follow Jesus. Like, like this one, he came up to me one, really the first morning, and he goes, I, I hate hypocrites in the church. I said, I know, don't you? They're the worst. And I'm one of them. And he goes, yeah, my business too, we got hypocrites. And so he goes, okay, that's a stupid argument. Uh, and then he said, yeah, but what about, can you really trust the Bible? Uh, but like, what do you mean? Well, aren't there all these contradictions in the Bible? I said, name one. He couldn't. So I showed him three. 
And then I showed him why, that's not really a contradiction. He goes, yeah, that's kind of stupid as well. Yeah, but what about, and so for days and days, he's like all these arguments and he realizes all of my reasons for not being a part of the church are bogus. And it was in Capernaum. If you don't know Capernaum, that was Jesus' headquarters. And it's right on the north shore of the Lake of Galilee, and it's where he did a ton of his miracles, lame people and Peter's mother-in-law and a, a, a woman who was bleeding, a girl who had died, all, all these miracles in Capernaum. He preached in that synagogue. We actually went into the synagogue that was built on top of the synagogue Jesus preached in. It's very exciting. And I noticed Stephen got really quiet and began to pull away from the other guys because the Lord was dealing with him at Capernaum. We get down to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, there's a tattoo shop that opened in 1300. 28 generations of the Razuks have tattooed pilgrims in Jerusalem. It began in 1295, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre told pilgrims, you can no longer carve a cross into the wall of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So the tattoo was a way that they could mark their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And again, for all those years, centuries, they've been tattooing pilgrims. So Stephen wanted to get a, another tattoo. He had a number. And so he got that. It was an awesome tattoo. It was, it was the Jerusalem cross, only the cross was made of two swords. It was super cool. On the bottom of it was a date that was two days earlier. And I said, Steve, like, I, I get it. Like, the tattoo is cool, but the date? Like, what is that? He said, that's the day I met Jesus in Capernaum. Right? I don't care who you are. You know, Steve was a guy that he was known for his drinking. He was known for his partying. He was known for making a lot of money in business and, like, being that high-driving business guy. Now he's going to be known for something else. And he said, I, I just posted a picture of this tattoo and I told all my clients, I want you to ask me about this. And he is going to be an evangelist for Jesus Christ. When we got back, we baptized him. And <laughs> it was so cool because all the guys on the trip were in the water with Stephen when he got baptized. And then after Stephen was baptized, he baptized his wife. His life is changed. That's what the quest for Christ looks like. And when we, when we approach this quest of Christ, it, it, everybody has equal access, even Stephen, even you. But what is it, if we do meet Christ, if we, if we do chase after him, the question we want to ask right now today, as we end this quest for this church this year, is what does Jesus expect from us now? Now that we've talked about him and followed him and gotten to know him, what does he really expect from us? And I'm going to land on Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. It's not just in Matthew 28. These are the last words of Jesus. So important that it's repeated five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and a sixth time by Paul in 2 Corinthians. We'll read that in a minute. The Great Commission is Jesus' final command to us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's just kind of like, you're familiar with that. He, he tells us to go and make disciples. And notice what he doesn't say, because when I have asked the question, like growing up in church, and I've asked the question, like, what, is, what does Jesus expect from me? The answers that I got, or at least that I heard, were there's some things that you need to stop doing. Like don't get drunk or avoid doing. Don't, don't sleep around. 
Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, right? That's what God expects of you. That's not in here. This is not about morality. Or I, I, I think this, maybe if you come to church, you're, you're supposed to like pray and read your Bible and go to church every week and tithe, right? That's what God expects of you. That's not in here. Good ideas, but that is not what Jesus wants most from you. Here's what Jesus wants most from you. I'll, I'll say it in a simple sentence. He wants you to brag about him so that he becomes famous where you live, work, and play. That's it. Now, if I were to be honest with you, that's intimidating. It's easier to tithe than to make Jesus famous. Because I, I'm naturally an introvert, and so like when I get on a plane, that I'm going to get on a plane this afternoon, I'm not going to talk to the person next to me. <laughs> I hear these stories about these people who like, start talking about Jesus, and they get engaged in this conversation, and before they land, they baptize the person in the bathroom. It's just like, it's like <laughs> I promise you, that will never happen with me. Like, I got my Bose noise-canceling headphones in, and I'm zoned in. And if that's you, if this idea of sharing your faith with someone is intimidating to you, like, I'm with you. I get it. You may not believe that because I stand on stage and talk about him. It's way easier to stand on stage and talk about him than over a cup of coffee. I get it. Because you, you ask this question, like, what if they ask me a question that I can't answer? Yeah, so what? Or, or what, if, what if I say something that's offensive to them and pushes them away from Christ? Wait a minute, they're already away from Christ. Wait. Or, or what, if, what if I just don't know what to say? Let's, let's not mystify this thing. Let's not make it more complicated than it has to be. All Jesus is asking you to do is brag about him to the people you know to make him famous. Like you have nothing good to say about Jesus. You have nothing that you would want to brag about what he's done in your life. That's what this Great Commission is all about. So let's, let's clarify a couple things. Just simplify this. It doesn't need to be scary. It doesn't need to be hard. And I promise you, by the end of the message, I'm going to get so practical with you. Like step by step, every single one of you, even if this is your first day to believe in Jesus, every one of you can share something with someone else to make Jesus famous. You ready? Here's what Jesus says. Verse 18 I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So let's just start there. Jesus, with all authority in heaven, the authority of God, the authority of angels, and on earth, over all political systems, Jesus has all authority everywhere to ask you to do this simple thing. And I love how Paul articulates this authority of Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is his commission account. So, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we, when we plead, come back to God. We are you know what an ambassador is, right? <laughs> it's someone who goes to a foreign country and represents the king or the president of their country. The U.S. ambassador in a different country has the authority of our president to declare war or to declare peace. So when Jesus says, I have all authority and I delegate you to be my ambassador, what does that mean? You have the ability, the authority to declare peace or declare war. Now, you can't do that willy-nilly just like, I don't like this person, so I declare war. No, you are representing the voice of your 
king. And if he says somebody's sins are forgiven, then you can say your sins are forgiven. If he says somebody's sins are not forgiven, they've not put their faith in me. They've not given their life to me. They've not gotten baptized. Then you have the right to say, the authority to say, you're outside of God. That is, a, that is an amazing, you understand how powerful that is. This is exactly what Paul says in the very next verse, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, he is the one who died for their sins, they're forgiven. I met a young woman, gosh, it's been over a decade ago. It was a youth conference, Biola University in California, and I spoken to this group of students, and one, of the, one young lady came up to me. She's 18 years old, getting ready to graduate. And she said, can I talk to you privately? Uh, no. Now, we can talk individually in a public setting, but yeah, no. So we go to lunch, and we're sitting at a table, and all her friends came around the table, and they're yada yada talking. And she was waiting. I, I could tell she's waiting until they left. And after lunch, there were workshops, so all the students, one by one, dribbled out, and it was just me and her on this patio deck outside, and she told me what she wanted to talk about. Her father was an elder of their church, and she had this pressure to live up to the reputation of the family, but she hadn't. In fact, she got pregnant, and because of the shame that would bring to the family, she never... She never could bring herself to tell her father. She just went to a clinic and had an abortion. She was so struck by guilt and shame. Here's her question. She told me the story. Here's her question. Can you tell me for sure that I'm going to hell? She was convinced. But, but what did Paul say? That Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And if you put your faith in Jesus, he, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you. And maybe this is a word for some of you that have been, you're not sure you even belong at this church. No, you belong, not because of your goodness, but because of Christ. So we're sitting at this little table, and she had leaned in to tell me her story. And so she said, give me your hands. And I pulled her in like really close, and I said, I can tell you, I have the authority from God to say to you, you are forgiven, you're going to heaven. That's the authority that we have as followers of Christ. Is there anybody in your circle that needs to know that they're forgiven? If you brag about Jesus and tell them the good things that he has done for you, and they say, well, how do I get that? And they put their faith in him. You have the authority from God as his ambassador to declare their sins forgiven. Who wouldn't want to do that? So here's the commission that Jesus gave to us in Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So there's, there's actually four verbs in this declaration. Go. Okay, that's one. Make disciples, that's two. Uh, baptize and teach. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. In English, there's four verbs. In the original language, there's one. Guess which one is the command? There's only one command. 
Is it go? Is it teach, baptize, make disciples? What is it? It's actually, it's not go. And it's not teach. It's not baptize. It's make disciples. Now, what does it mean to make a disciple? I've read a lot of books on this and, and all the kind of the, 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 the research, the, the people t- telling you how to make disciples, it, it so often has to do with have a Bible study. You know, dig into the Bible or let's disciple someone. We're going to sit around a coffee table with a Bible open. Or we're going to discuss what's in the Bible. Actually, it has very little to do with what you know. It has everything to do with how you live. The word for disciple could better be translated as to coach or mentor or even, this is my favorite, apprentice. Could you make an apprentice? You're going, I can't teach a Bible study. I don't know enough of the Bible. Okay, fine. You don't need to, to be a person who apprentices another person in following Jesus. I got to apprentice Raimundo Marroquin. He was a Hispanic cab driver in San Antonio. I was ministering down there. We had a college group come in and we went door to door for evangelism. <laughs> These two, like they're 19 year old, uh, white in a neighborhood that was 90% Hispanic and rough. They're knocking on doors scared to death. They knocked on Raimundo's door. He was taking a nap. He didn't take kindly to them waking him up from his nap. So he jerks open the door. He's over six foot tall, big guy, didn't look like them. And he goes, who taught you how to knock? They nearly wet themselves. (laughs) But Raimundo told me later that he looked at their faces and he, he saw like they had the face of an angel. And the spirit convicted him. You need, to, you need to hear what they have to say. And so he heard the gospel and he became a Christian that day. It, it was so cool because like he had come from a Catholic background. And this idea of personal relationship with Jesus was brand new to him. And he took it seriously. One day he came into the church and he was, he was sobbing, sobbing. And he said, I've sinned. I said, well, come on. I guess he was still Catholic enough. He thought I was a priest. He needed to confess. So... We sit on a front pew and he, he said, I, I said, what, what happened? And he goes, I leadered. He had a thick Hispanic accent and I, I didn't know what he meant. I said, so tell me about that. Well, I leadered. What, what, what does that mean? I was driving my cab and I'd been smoking. And the Lord convicted me. I, I, I need to honor him by, by, by not smoking anymore. So I had a pack of cigarettes and I, and I threw it out the window I leadered. I said, bless you, my son, you are forgiven. I didn't even have him do Hail Marys, man. It's it's, it's fine, Ray. When we moved away, Ray came to visit us at the Bible college. He was looking at, at going into ministry. And so he stayed at our house for several days. And at the end of three days at my house, he said, Pastor, you have taught me something. And I was curious because I was a Bible college professor. I've got a lot to teach. I said, what did I teach you, Ray? What, was it about premillennialism? Was it about hermeneutics? What, like all these fancy things I could have taught him. What was it that I taught you? And he said, you taught me that I don't need to shout at my wife. That's what I taught you. That was a big deal for him. Because he had never had a model in his own home about treating a woman with that kind of dignity. 
And I would, actually, I was very honored by that because I don't just want to change someone's mind of what they think. I want to change their marriage, their family, their kids. And watching Ray's growth, I was able to just mentor him. It wasn't by the smart teachings or deep theology. It's not through your Bible study that you're going to change this culture. It is by apprenticing people how to walk with Jesus. And all you have to do is show them the difference that Jesus has made in your marriage, in your family, in your business. And people will be stunned at how different your life is and how different their life can be if you just spend some time with them. And look, I, I know this can be intimidating because like, I, don't, I, don't know if I, I don't know how to baptize someone. We, we can take care of that. I, I don't know how to teach them all of Jesus' commands. How do I do that? Well, I, I actually counted all the commands of Jesus one time. There's 109 of them. That tells you something about my social life. Boring, boring. But 109 commands, but all of them could be summarized in two. Do you know them? Say it out loud if you do. Love God. Love people. See, this is simple. You know how to do this. Show, show them how to walk with God. Show people how to love others. And you will change this world by bragging about Jesus so that he becomes famous. And, and even, even if you don't know what to say in a moment, that's okay. Because as Jesus finishes this commission, listen to, listen to the promise that he makes. And this is a promise to you. It's another all of this call. He said, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, what does that mean? In an earlier promise, when Jesus sent out his uh, 12 apostles, first time he sent them out for their solo tour, two by two, you, you go preach. He said, you're, you're going to be called in front of governors. And these guys were fishermen. Like Peter in particular, it was dangerous every time he opened his mouth. Because like sometimes it's going to be good, sometimes he had foot and mouth disease. Open mouth, insert foot, that's Peter. And yet Jesus made a promise, I, I'm going to give you the words to say. In the moment when you're, when you're under the gun, when you're under pressure, if you need words, I will give you the words. I, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. When, when I am telling, bragging about Jesus to someone, and I just don't know what to say that will touch their heart, the Holy Spirit intervenes. I'll tell you one example, and maybe you have better examples than this, but I was asked to do a memorial service for a man who had been murdered. His wife, she didn't go to our church. All her kids went to our church. Four children, four different marriages. Their family was a train wreck. And the man she was married to, uh, he, he was from Mexico, didn't have his green card, and they got married and we were living together in San Antonio. To go celebrate her birthday, they went out to a bar and they're walking home at like 2.30 in the morning. And, and so junior high gangbangers came up to him and attacked him. I mean, he's a full-grown man. He beat all of them until one of them ran into his house and pulled off a, a sawed-off shotgun and murdered him in the street. I was to do, he was buried in Mexico. I was to do a memorial with the family in their home. That's what I had prepared. And I show up at the home, and the, the door is wide open. Spring day, it was warm. 
but there's all kind of cars, but no people. And I walked in and there was the widow and her sister. They were the only ones at the house. And she said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I want you to go. Everyone else is at the side of the execution. I want you to do a memorial there for the neighborhood. I had not prepared for that. And I was a little bit miffed at the Holy Spirit. Like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't funny. And he just said, I, remember, I'll give you the words. I was mad. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't take it well. Two blocks, I have to rewrite a memorial for a community-involved uh, service. The guys who had shot him were actually off uh, to the side listening. And there was about 50 or 60 people all standing around. There was a there was a reporter from the Los Angeles Times. There was a, a radio personality from our city uh, with a microphone, and she shoved it in my face and said, do you mind if I record you? I looked at the Holy Spirit, and I said to her, yeah, record every word. I can't tell you what happened next. I don't really know what happened next. All I know is the Holy Spirit showed up, and it was not me. It was him. I don't have the wisdom or strength but the message, the Holy Spirit, like I opened my mouth and the Holy Spirit came out and it was unbelievably powerful. I know that this works. And some of you say, God, give me power and I'll step out. No, it doesn't work that way. He gives you power after you step out. And there's a person right now that maybe your friend's name is on the light bulb in the lobby. Remember those? People you've been praying for who are outside of Christ, pre-Christians like Stephen who... You, you don't know how you're going to answer their questions. You don't know what you're going to say to them. Don't worry about it. I promise you the Holy Spirit, when you step out in faith, the Holy Spirit will step in for your words. You're not going to get it all right. You don't need to get it all right. People are not interested in what you say. They're interested in how deeply you care. And if you care enough to risk a difficult conversation, then they will hear your heart and they will see Jesus for who he is. That's the promise. So how, how are we gonna do this? I wanna get very practical with you right now and give you four suggestions that every single one of you can do this week. You ready? Suggestion number one, start where you are. I, I, I would, <laughs> at one point, I'm embarrassed to even admit this. I, I did street corner evangelism you know, people stand on a soapbox and preach on the court. I did that. It was not effective. And I didn't sense the Holy Spirit intervening for me. Sorry, I just didn't. In fact, I think I was more irritating than helpful. God's not asking you to do that. You have someone in your family that needs a good word from Jesus. You have someone where you work that needs to hear you brag about Jesus. You have an old friend from high school that needs to hear you brag about Jesus. Every one of us, in fact, I would suggest this, that starting today, you start a list of people that you will pray for every week to know Jesus. And I swear to you, if you pray for five people who are pre-Christians, if you pray that God would give you an opportunity to, to, to brag about Jesus in front of those five people, you will always, every week, every, if you have five people you're praying for, every week you will have at least one opportunity. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But you need to step out first. So get your five. That's step number one. Start where you are. Step number two, share a meal. Say to the person that you want to brag to Jesus about, hey, you want to go to lunch with me? 
You may not even talk about Jesus, but you can talk about them, get to know them, their hearts, their dreams, their hurts. And as you hear them talk about their life, there will be an open door, a moment where they say something that is a segue to you bragging about Jesus. I promise you. And meals, the reason a meal is important is because God designed us as the only animals on the planet that eat communally. Why? Because eating communally is a spiritual activity. You know what the first thing we're going to do when we get to heaven? First thing, first thing, marriage supper of the lamb. It is spiritual. And somehow God invades that very normal meal with his presence. And if you take someone to a meal who you want to brag about Jesus with, there will be an opening. Number three, step number three, stack influences. Here's what I mean by that. Sociologists have identified why people convert to any cult or any religion. Here's why. All of us have people, in, well, every person that we meet, we assign a level of influence to. So a person that you just meet randomly on the street corner, very little influence, but you care about what they think. I can prove this to you. The last time someone flipped you off on the freeway, it made you mad, right? Why? Because you care about what they think. It's just a little bit. You got over it. It's not a big deal. But every person matters in some way. The person you marry, they matter a lot. Your own children, they matter a lot. So some people have unequal weight. But if you take all of the weight of all of the people that you know, and then you divide it, who is in Christ and who is outside of Christ. When the weight of influence is inside of Christ, that's when people convert. So if you're going to leverage that principle, it's really quite easy. You take a person out to a meal that you want to brag about Jesus with, and then you introduce them to another Jesus follower, and then another Jesus follower, and another Jesus follower. In fact, if you invite them to your small group, that may be the best way to stack influence when they meet someone with the same hobbies, the same interests, and all of a sudden following Jesus becomes normalized, and it's easier for them to step into faith. The last, the last suggestion I would make is invite them into church. Look, I would love for every one of you to be able to share the gospel on your own and to explain Jesus to people. You don't have to. I would love for that to be the case. But if you don't know how to walk someone into like the theology of baptism, that's okay. Bring them to church. The staff here, the team here, the volunteers here, we'll do the heavy lifting on the content side. All you have to do is get them in the environment. And when they see people worshiping as your worship leaders lead them, as they hear the word of God, let us do the heavy lifting. All you have to do is get them, get them on the premises. Now, when I was growing up, I went to a church. It was a hard invite. I mean, the, the pews were hard, literally hard wood. It was terrible. The preaching was, was pretty bad. The music was even worse. And so inviting my friends to church is like, why would I do that? But this place, this church, are you kidding me? I mean, to look around, look at the facilities, look at the preaching, look at the staff, look at your elders, and, and this church. I preach a lot all around the country. I can say with definitively that this church has more coffee per capita than any other church in the universe. So there's that. 
This is an easy invite. But you know when the easiest of all invites is? Easy of all invites of the whole year. You know what it is? In two weeks. Christmas. Even those outside of Christ are looking for an excuse for a family event of quality. That is exactly what you have. So out, out in the lobby, uh, you'll find these Christmas invite cards. Rather, rather than inviting someone to the service that you want to go to, take one of your friends and say to them, which of these times work best for you? I'll go with you. And the mistake that most Christians make when they invite someone to church is they say, hey, you want to go to church with me? I don't know what that means. If I'm outside of Christ, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to dress. I don't know where the church is located. I don't know how long the service is. So here's what a good invite looks like. You ready? Hey, you want to come to church with me? It, it lasts for about an hour. We're going to sing about usually three songs. And the way you're dressed right now, that's exactly how I'm going to dress. You don't need to dress up. And I'll, I'll be glad to pick you up or we can meet in the parking lot. Uh, you'll see a number in the parking lot or a sign. Wherever you want to tell them to meet you, give them, answer the questions before they have to ask them. And the, you will more likely get to a yes. Now, let me put some math to this. You ready? Because I'm expecting every one of you to do this. Because this is so simple. Every one of us can do it this week. On average, one in three people are waiting to go to church for someone to ask them to come to church. One in three people who are outside of Christ. One in three will say yes. One in three. Oh, but... They may not come the very first time you ask them. Why? Because they might have plans. They could be busy. They might be out of town or someone in their family could be sick. So one invite won't get them there. It usually takes, for the one person who's going to say yes, it takes three invites. So here's the math. If one in three says yes, one in three times, you need nine invites to get to a yes. Simple? Could you do that? You, if you have five people that you're praying for, that God would open an opportunity to speak. One of them this week is gonna give you an opportunity. Invite that person to church. Not once, three times. So what you need to do is in the lobby, get nine of these cards. If you get nine of these cards, make nine invites. You may be going to three different services. <laughs> but if you ask nine people, I promise you, one of them will come with you. And I cannot tell you the inexplicable joy of being in the baptistry with someone that you care about. That will change your life, not just theirs. This is Jesus' last command. Let's make it our first priority. Holy Father, this is such a good place. And far better than this place is your good grace. Would you, Holy Spirit, move right now through this audience that every person in the room and online would be convicted that this is something you want us to do. This is what you expect from us now. So in our continued quest for you, Jesus, would you give us the courage, prompted by your spirit, to brag about you, to make you famous? That is our goal. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week.